This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a wholesome and holy life. Hey, today's podcast is a double feature. It's actually twice as long as typical podcasts, so I'll keep the pre-show announcements really short. First of all, you can still get the Stop Self-Sabotage report at plantyourself.com slash sabotage. Second of all, thank you so much to the folks who stepped up to become patrons of the show. I'm now up to $330 a month, which is almost one-third of the way to my first stretch goal. So thank you all so much. Third thing, Big Change Program restarts in September. So if you're not on the mailing list, then go to bigchangeprogram.com and you can sign up on the mailing list. I think I may even have signups up already. Uh, I'm not quite ready for you, so we'll have to, uh, you know, noodle things around a little bit. But if you're really eager and you want to get in before I close the doors, you can do that. And uh, otherwise, let's get to today's show. So my guest is Tara Kemp. I met Tara at Plantstock uh, last year and a couple of years ago, and I was just immediately struck by what a happy, warm, friendly, persuasive person she is, not by saying anything, not by lecturing, by haranguing, by quoting statistics, but just her life itself and her energy and her demeanor and her glow, all just like you look at her and you go, well, whatever she's doing, I want to do the same thing. So she's one of the great luminaries and ambassadors of the plant-based movement. She's been involved in plant stock. She's been involved in forks over knives. She uh, has a plan to uh, take over the world as a dietitian. And I thought we would just have a fun conversation, but it turned really deep and actually for the first half kind of dark. And so what came to me through this conversation was the way in which we can go through our journeys and use all of the trials and all of the suffering to make us stronger, to make us better, to make us more self-loving and in more service to others. So that's kind of giving the whole plot away. I hope you'll stay with us for the whole thing, and I'll see you again on the other side. So without further ado, Tara Kemp, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I think we, we scheduled this more or less. We, we, we tried to schedule it like starting almost a year ago. <laughs> I we, know. We, we met at Plantstock, so for, for various reasons, um, it didn't happen until now. And so I have to believe the, the universe um, has kind of teed us off to have a, a, a really interesting discussion. And just, you know, book, as we were talking before I hit the record, we kind of went over like what the topics would be. And said, well, why don't we we'll begin with me asking you like, what you're up to right now and your answer was well i'm really up in the air right <laughs> so, so let's why don't we you know where, where were you when i when i was thought i was going to ask you that question and what's happened since yeah so <laughs> basically um so for the past year i've been working part-time and taking classes part-time and the class that i classes that i've been taking have been preparing me for starting a graduate program uh, at Loma Linda University, a master's in public health coordinated uh, registered dietitian program. And um, basically at this point, uh, I have about two months until my classes all need to be finished. And (laughs) I um, am just coming to the realization uh, within the past month that 
I probably should have, I guess, you know, these classes are a completely different rigor than I'm used to. Um, things like English and writing and discussion-based classes come really easily to me, and that's the bulk of what I did in my undergraduate degree. So I worked very hard for the grades that I got, but it was a different kind of working hard. It was a lot of things that I naturally enjoyed or had like some level of skill with, and things like organic chemistry do not come easily to me, and I'm finding that I have to spend a lot more time on the classes and with the material, and there's this whole leap of like just not even understanding what I'm even looking at and like really needing to sit and work with it for a very long time. So I recently uh, quit uh, my, my jobs that I was doing and I'm a full-time student right now for the summer, but <laughs> whether or not I will actually start my graduate program in the fall or whether I will have to delay the start a little bit, either uh, six months or a year, just depending on uh, talking through what they think is best in terms of best start times for this program. Um, so we'll see if I actually start my program in the fall. <laughs> okay. I, but, I, feel, I feel like I should get you off this podcast so you can go hit the books. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've been, don't worry, I've been uh, very, very diligent on my studying and a little break like this feels good. Um, but yeah, so anyways, we'll, we'll see what happens with that and thankfully... I do feel like if if I do have to delay my start a year, um, as unfortunate as that would be, I also think that I'll be able to fill that time with valuable work, uh, still make a contribution to this movement in the field of plant-based nutrition, and definitely continue to learn and grow in ways that will only serve me even more once I'm in school or working as a, a dietitian. So... I, I have this sense of peace that it's all going to be okay, but <laughs> my my current, you know, what I'm going to be doing in three months from now is, is a little more up in the air than if we had talked, like, two months ago. <laughs> gotcha. Well, there's a whole bunch of things, threads that I want to follow there. You know, the first one is, like, this total projection of myself onto your circumstances, because I also, you know, love the humanities and essay writing and deep thinking. And I think part, part of it, like when I started getting into the harder sciences, especially when I was researching, you know, the books that I helped write, mm -hmm. was like it occurred to me like how good I was at bullshit and how, how, how little room there was for that in, you know, like understanding the, uh, the, the chemical reactions involved in like mixed function oxidase. Right, right. Like this whole this whole superpower had been taken away from me, where I now actually had to like know facts. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely been um, a really good challenge and a really good uh, just like complete switch in terms of like the way that I learn and the way that I study. Like I've had to take an entirely new approach and uh, really, really dig in more and yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, helping me with the whole like growth mindset versus fixed mindset, like really working on my growth mindset and believing that even though these foundational classes don't come easily to me, I'm so invested in making sure that I know this information because I know that it's going to lay a foundation for the stuff that I really do care about that actual 
applicable nutrition knowledge, you know? So, um, it's, I think it's, it's been good, <clears throat> been good for me. So, so the other thing that I'm curious about, and I've been curious about this since I heard you on the thought for food podcast, I think you were talking with Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, and you kind of got into this issue of like, why the hell are you doing that in the first place? Like, what, what, <laughs> like, you, you know, for, for a, and I understand you're going to Loma Linda, which is different than, you know, X state. But to to have to navigate a world of nutritional science that you don't really believe, to get a couple of letters in front of your name, like what's what's the what's the calculus that went into deciding like this is this is a challenge I want to take I want to take up. Right. Um, well, I'll start by mentioning that as much as I chose Loma Linda for the fact that, you know, it has the Seventh-day Adventist background, which puts them uh, naturally eating a vegetarian diet or just, you know, not everyone, but a large amount of the population naturally eats a vegetarian diet based on their religious principles. And as you know, the Adventist health studies take place there. And uh, it's one of the blue zones of the world. Like, that was definitely why I chose the school, especially because of the research they do there so that I can learn from them and potentially be involved. But I will say um, it's not like they teach plant-based nutrition. You know, they they teach a a general nutrition program and they still uh, teach the benefits of eggs and fish and dairy and... (laughs) Uh, not that I've started yet, but just from what I've heard from people who work at the university or from people who are in those classes or who have taken those classes, um, it's not like the, <laughs> the pot of gold. Um, but it is, it is definitely the best option that I was aware of at the time when I was applying. So I'm very fortunate and excited to be going there, but I wanted to just like throw that in there. Um, because I still will be paying a lot of money and going into debt in order to learn things that I know are incorrect, um, <laughs> which was a right. tough decision to make for sure. Right. So like when I, when I go to like, you know, we, we met at plant stock and I go to events like that and I hear the doctors talking and then I have a coaching consulting practice around health. Like, I wonder like what, what is the marginal benefit of, an RD degree. If I'm just basically telling people, hey, you guys should eat this, don't eat that, this is good for you, that's not good for you, read a couple of books. Like, where, I feel like I can handle like 99% of the questions without knowing the details. So what yeah. what, attract, what attracted you to this professional track? Right. So I definitely think that you're correct. I'm sure that you are a wonderful uh, health and nutrition and lifestyle coach and I'm sure your clients are getting amazing results, and um, you definitely don't need a degree in order to, you know, gain knowledge and be able to work with people. I feel like at this point, I've, I know that I still have so much to learn. I think we always have so much to learn, uh, but I do feel like there are a lot of, you know, for the most part, I can work with people, and I do work with some people and help them to change their diet, and I know a lot of information and you can be self-taught these days, especially because like we're saying, these institutional degrees often teach you so much that is incorrect that you have to then unlearn. Um, 
But that being said, I think that for the professional goals that I have, I want to have the degree because I want to uh, kind of create change more from inside the system rather than pushing from outside of the system. And that being said, I don't know if I'll uh, graduate and take my degree to go on and work in, you know, a standard hospital setting or an, an inpatient or outpatient uh, medical clinic or anything like that. I think that I will maybe do something a little different, but I do want to have the traditional degree just because I know that is what is currently respected in our society and what will enable me to work with people who aren't able to afford something outside of, you know, what uh, their medical insurance covers or, you know, to be able to just lend that degree to the movement in a way that will serve all of us. I think that I just want to have the doors open to me to be able to create that change from the inside. And I, as much as there's uh, so much of dietetics that it's hard to believe in and, and I guess in some ways respect when you know that there's so much wrong, I also really want to see the future of healthcare moving in a direction of lifestyle medicine and preventive medicine and using, well, not just preventive, but also treatment through nutrition and lifestyle practices. And I want to see that change. And I know that I have to, if I want to see that change, I have to help create it. Gotcha. So you're like uh, Gorbachev biding his time in the KGB until he can take over and democratize Russia. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> holding your nose a little bit so you can get in and get honored so then you can start making changes from within. Right. And I'm sure that there will be parts of, of the dietetics degree and training that will be good information to know. And then I think there will be other parts where it's like, okay, like it's just good to get a sense of what other people in this field are learning. Like this is what people, this is what our dietitians go through in this country in order to get certified. And this is how they're trained. So knowing this and knowing what foundation they're given, it will help me to see what they might, what I might need to do in order to help change that, if that makes sense. Yeah, right. So like I can, well, you and I can talk all day about how doctors don't learn about nutrition, but it's hard to believe. But when like Garth Davis or, or you know, Linda Carney or someone says, yeah, I, I had like half an hour of nutrition in medical school and it was all about IV feeding. Mm-hmm. You know, like then you go, oh, okay. Well, they actually lived it. They're not just—they're not just repeating something they heard. Right, and then they're better able to say, like, okay, where in the medical school training process could we implement, you know, nutrition? And you know, they've—they've they've been through it. They know how other doctors have been trained, and so they know what they're working with in their field. You know. Right. So. One of the reasons, I, the, the, ma- well, the main reason I wanted to interview you after meeting you at Plant Stock, it wasn't like you, you're, you know, you haven't done research, you don't have this, you know, long pedigree. What really impressed me was sort of your ability to communicate the, the joy and happiness and pleasure of this lifestyle 
in a way that that I can't, and that almost no one I know can. In that you 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 have a certain sort of just you know loving presence around it. That when when people see you and are around you and they hear a little bit about you, they're like, "Wow, that sounds like a really fun party." You know, where's where's, <laughs> where's the velvet rope that, that I can climb under and and get in? Um, so kind of just as a full disclosure. Like what I really have appreciated about you is the positivity and spirit and artistry that you bring as an advocate to this lifestyle. Wow. Well, thank you for saying that. No one has ever said that or quite put it into those words, and I really appreciate that. Uh, well, a- ask them. I bet. I bet they all agree. Thank um, you. That, so, that was beautifully said. Yeah. Unfortunately, for an interviewer, it wasn't a question. So right. <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't tee you up for anything, but um, I guess the question maybe is, like, how did you get here from, from where you were? Maybe it's a good time to kind of go into your, your origin story. Right. You know, did you grow up on an ashram, right. you know, eat, chewing on kale as a pacifier? Or? <laughs> the good old origin story. Um, okay, so it was not an ashram upbringing. Uh, I grew up in a suburb outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And my family uh, is wonderful in a lot of ways. I had a very uh, beautiful, uh, sheltered, in a way, childhood. Like, there wasn't, I didn't have, a lot of people go through uh, different trying things in their childhoods. And I had a very loving family and was always taken care of. And I have a lot to be really grateful for in those senses. Um, I was a gymnast growing up, and I just, I never really thought about food. Like, I can't remember actually thinking about food and nutrition and all that stuff really until, like, middle school. Um, When I was younger, I just... I mean, I, you, you, hear, you see people who are overweight and things, but I just I really thought that like people who are overweight are people who like eat at McDonald's every day. And I was always like, you know, I, <laughs> I had my fair share of fast food. Like the gymnastics, uh, the gym where I went to was like 30 to 40 minutes from my house. And there was a group of girls that, you know, were in the carpool together and after practice, we would usually stop at either uh, McDonald's or Burger King or Dunkin' Donuts, or there was this place called Racks that was another fast food place that was kind of like an Arby's. Um, but we did that pretty often. And then, you know, even when we didn't do that, dinner was often a Hot Pocket or, or something like that. And And I will say, like, to my parents' credit, they are... They are relatively health conscious, so, and even more so now that I, <laughs> I've gotten more health conscious. Uh, but you know, when I was younger, like we always had vegetables at dinner, and uh, we didn't buy like Stouffer's like mac and cheese or like microwave meals on the regular. We didn't have, you know, I would have like one lunchable package a year. Like when I would go to this summer camp, it was like one time we were allowed to get lunchables, and it was really exciting and. Uh, we weren't allowed to have like, you know, cookie crisp cereal for breakfast or whatever, but you know, we also ate like a relatively standard American diet, like plenty of meat, plenty of cheese, 
Uh, I ate tons of the processed lunch meats. Um, I ate my fair share of hot dogs and hamburgers and bacon and eggs and, you know, all that stuff. So while I... As a gymnast, were you were you like a you know after school gymnast or like a four a.m. gymnast? Like how how serious did you get? <laughs> so I was pretty serious, but I wasn't a four a.m. gymnast. Uh, I practiced four or five days a week for about four hours each time. I guess more like yeah, three and a half to four hours each time. And uh, I was a gymnast basically from. Like, my earliest memories, I started gymnastics when I was not even three years old. And then uh, by age seven, I was competing. And I competed from age seven until age 13. Um, so at any point, were you, were you harboring Olympic dreams, like, at that, at that level? Of, of, no, of no. I wasn't harboring Olympic dreams. Um, it really it was something that I was serious about and that was a key part of my identity. But... I personally was not feeling like it was something that I wanted to to go do professionally. Um, I guess I did. I mean, I wasn't even really, I can't even think that I was thinking that far ahead to college yet. But I think that if you had asked me when I was like, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, like, do you want to do this when when you're in college? Like, do you want to continue doing this as long as you can? I would have said yes. Uh Um, but somewhere around age like 12, 13, uh, it just started getting to my head. And I started really questioning everything that I was doing that, you know, I had the muscle memory for. And I had the, the skill level to do physically. But mentally, I was just like questioning all of it uh, And it started out with the balance beam and, you know, there's this, I was doing this skill where you do a back handspring connected to a back handspring uh, on the balance beam. And I just like, I had been doing it and I'd been practicing it. And then it came time to, for the competitive season to start. And I just, I started like having these like brain blocks and I like wouldn't. So anyways, it like all, it all got to that point and it was, uh, a really rough year. Um, maybe it was even a little over a year where I was really struggling with that. And uh, my my coaches, you know, everyone always does their best, but they did not handle it in a way that was beneficial to me. And eventually, I just I couldn't handle the the mental stress and anxiety that I was going through every day because it was kind of that thing. Have you heard of like the double arrow? Like you shoot yourself or you get shot with one arrow and then the feelings that you have about that decide whether or not you get shot with the second arrow. And that second arrow is your own feelings about what you're going through or your feelings about your feelings. (laughs) And uh, so not only was I experiencing anxiety, I was also putting myself down and telling myself that like, I shouldn't be feeling this. And, like, why all of a sudden am I scared of these things that I've been doing for years? And, you know, why? Like, I was just... And then I would sit there and be nervous. You know, I would sit in school and be nervous that I was going to get nervous and not be able to do things when I got to gymnastics that night. And, uh, yeah, it just... It was getting to the point where I I was not... 
mentally healthy and I just couldn't, it wasn't fun for me anymore. And so I quit, but I went through this entire, like, you know, loss of identity because I, you know, I had friends at school, but the people that I spent the majority of my time with, because I was spending all of my evenings at gymnastics and then on the weekends I was at gymnastics meets and like my, my core group of people was my friends from gymnastics and everyone at school knew me as the gymnast. And I had not really thought about like, what would I do if I wasn't in gymnastics? And all of a sudden I found myself in this place where it was like, I'm no longer spending any time with all of my friends and they're all doing this thing that I'm not doing anymore. And, you know, they were all still like friendly and nice to me. It's not like my friends were like, Oh, she quit. We're like cutting her off. But it was just, I was in this different place. And, um, so that I, I imagine there might have been some awkwardness and people, you know, feeling a little self-conscious and sorry for you. And thank you know, thank God it wasn't them. There, yeah, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like, you know, I mean, when you're 12 or 13, you know, now you can say, well, then I stopped gymnastics and it doesn't have any juice to it. But at that time in your life, when you're sort of beginning to come into your identity, this was like a, a form of, uh, of death, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It was it was a really uh, rough time. And it it did. It was it did feel like I didn't. I didn't really know who I was and I was kind of in this place of like, okay, like who am I going to be now? And, um, so to tie this back into, you know, the food and like my, my vegan story (laughs) and my health story is that when I was in gymnastics, I just, I was constantly working out and I knew that I was active and thin and healthy and I didn't really think about it that much. And when I quit gymnastics and I was, I, it put me in this place where I started thinking more about like, wait, I don't know if I can just not think about things anymore. Like maybe I, I need to think about food and what I'm eating and how much I'm moving my body. And like, it just put me in this place where I was, I started to think about these things in a way that I hadn't before. And of course this also happened. I mean, 13, 14 is an age where this often happens for, for women especially because it's when we're hitting puberty and we're starting to have those changes in our bodies anyways. And so that kind of all just kind of came together at that time in my life and put me in a place where I started thinking about food. And, you know, that could have been a positive thing, like, in, like just at, you know, point blank, like, without adding any extra feelings or circumstances to it, it's not necessarily a bad thing for someone to start thinking about what they eat or how they move their body. But for me, you know, I was, I was not just thinking about it in that way. I was thinking about, like, I just, I started putting, um, this extra weight to it and I started restricting more than I needed to. Like I was not coming from a place of being overweight. I was a healthy, very fit (laughs) post-gymnastics person and I wasn't eating like, I was eating well. Um, But I started uh, restricting food and I, one of, you know, I had made a friend, um, like, you know, this, this person was, 
uh, a beautiful friend to me during a time in my life when, like I said, all of my best friends were suddenly, like, you know, in, in one decision, all of my best friends where I was, you know, they lived in different places and didn't go to the same school as me. So suddenly I found my pla- myself in this place where, like, my, my core group, I was no longer with them. And um, I made this one friend at school, and she was really an important part of that transition time for me. But anyway, she was on the cross-country team. And so she uh, invited me to join her in doing cross-country. And so I, I did that for a little while. Um, I also, <laughs> I also tried out, there's a, a sport, there's actually a sport called trampoline, which I did for a while, which is a fun fact that I sometimes forget that I did that for a year. Um, but anyways, I, so I became a runner and, and then I, uh, started dancing. And so my freshman year of high school, I was doing cross country and track and dance and, uh, especially during the track season, when track season and, and dance were going on at the same time, I was literally going from school straight to track, and I would be at track uh, until like four thirty or five, and then I would dance from like five until eight thirty or nine, and then I would get home and you know, have a quick dinner and finish my homework until like 11 and then go to sleep and get up at 6am and do it all again. And on the weekends, I would often have like a dance competition one day and a track meet the next day. And so I was just constantly moving, which could have been fine. But because I was coming from a place where I had been restricting my food, and then I was now doing this, um, my body was just in a place where like, there was no way it was going to get enough to eat. And so I had lost a ton of weight and, and at the time, you know, I liked it. I felt great about it. Uh, but can I, can I ask you about the, the, the restriction? Cause here, here's where I thought the story was going to go. Mm-hmm. It's like you stopped doing gymnastics. You were, you felt a little bit sort of alienated and you turned to food for comfort and you gained 40 pounds. Like that's, mm. that's what I was, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> the story was going to be, and then you developed disordered eating, and you know, but you went immediately to restriction. So yes. first of all, first of all, I'm curious, like what what did you, what was your drug of choice for coping, if it wasn't food, and um, you know maybe maybe let's start there. Like did you did you, you know, a twelve thirteen year old tends not to have a lot of emotional resources mm-hmm. like what, how how what did you turn to in, for, for coping so I think that it was food that I turned to for coping but for me so in in psycho <laughs> psychoanalyzing myself here um when I was in gymnastics and I was experiencing those those mental struggles I think that I was in a place where I felt out of control and I felt like I was falling victim to the anxious thoughts in my head and like they had power over me and that I, I, uh, I, I had no, I had no control and no power to overcome them. Um, and I couldn't break free from them. And so 
I think that I found comfort in the control that I found that I had through food. Mm. And I think that 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 was my my uh whatever you called it drug of choice or my comfort. That was that was what uh helped me to cope in that time. So here here's a place where you did have agency even even if the voice was te- was the voice telling you like you know yummy chocolate shake and fries and and you exerted control and said you know i can't control what i hear but i can control what i do about it yeah and you know obviously this is all subconscious like you know at the time i wasn't thinking about these things um at the time it was like like, I remember I was, like, I remember, like, a time when I was, like, sitting there and I was, like, with a couple of friends and we had just gone to an amusement park and we're, like, driving home and I'm drinking, like, a Starbucks, uh, I never liked coffee, but they used to have these, I don't know, I don't know what Starbucks has these days, but it was, like, a strawberries and cream type of drink and then I was, like, eating some, like, a bag of jelly beans and I just remember thinking, like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Like, I don't know if, if my, like, what if, what if this stuff actually starts to affect me? Like, I haven't worked, I haven't done a workout in, like, a month or whatever, and I just, so I just remember having that moment, and I don't remember, like, from then moving forward, like, exactly what pace it progressed, but it got to a point where I knew what foods were lower calorie and what foods were higher calorie. And I was definitely trying to make sure, and I wasn't like counting. I never had a point where I know that some people go through things where they like count everything specifically. And I never like counted my calories. I just was very aware of like not eating very much. Um, and, and then, you know, once I was dancing and running, like I ate enough to I never like passed out and I was always fueling myself enough to do everything that I did, but, and like I never, I lost a lot of weight, but I never lost so much that I looked emaciated where uh, people were like, I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of people who were worried about me and there were people that voiced it, but I never hit that point where it's like, okay, this person is becoming, uh, truly emaciated and definitely needs to be checked into a facility. It was more like I was always kind of borderline. Uh-huh. And um, so were you were you dysmorphic in in like, you know, you'd look at yourself and say, no, I got to lose another five pounds. A little bit. Um, I would say that more so than feeling like I needed to lose weight, I always just felt like I didn't want to gain weight. So even when I lost a lot of weight, I was, I was dysmorphic in the sense that I wasn't like, oh my gosh, I lost so much weight. Um, but I never thought I was fat. I always was just like, okay, but I don't want to gain weight. Yeah, so a very defensive posture. Yes. Um, so anyways. I mean, when, you know, when I, th- when I think about like 13-year-old girl gymnasts, I don't think of them packing on a lot of pounds. Like, right. <laughs> You know, yeah. if they keep going four or five hours a day, by the time they're 18 or 22, they still look like they're 12, right? Right, yeah. So, so anyways, during this time, um, 
my my mom did notice that I was losing weight, and she, you know, voiced her concern. And we didn't even have a scale in the house. And you know, she went out and bought a scale and uh, showed me that I had lost a lot of weight. And I ended up going to a couple of doctors about it. And you know, this is where <laughs> thinking back, it's you know, I. I'm grateful for the journey that has brought me here, but certain things are just like, you know, frustrating to think about. Like, I remember going to a doctor who was like, okay, like you've lost X amount of pounds since your last checkup. Like you need to gain weight again. You're clearly an active person. Um, And at this point I was like 14. Maybe I was, yeah, I think I was 14 when I'm talking about all of this, maybe 15 if we're talking freshman year of high school. Um, and so, you know, I had lost my period, so, of course, they, rather than saying, like, let's try having you gain some weight and see what happens, they just put me on the pill. And I was like, okay, now I get my period, so it's all good. Like, uh, these just, you know, the, the way that they m- decided to, you know, help me with things, quote, help me with things, uh, were not very helpful, or... I remember I went to one doctor who was like, okay, you need to gain some weight. So uh, the best way to do that sounds like you, you know, you eat. It's not like you're not eating. <clears throat> so try and, try and put butter on, on like most of your meals or like have, have a Snickers bar at night before you go to bed. Um, just like any way for me to add like extra calories. They were just like add calories and exactly. add fattening calories. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm, you know, you didn't mention specifically like what your gymnastic coaches were doing that wasn't helpful, but I'm sort of I'm sort of imagining that at this period of your life, like, you know, 11 to 4 to 15, you're kind of getting a PhD in in reductionist symptomology. Yes. <laughs> it's it's like and and knowing, you know, where we I know where we're going to go in this conversation a little bit. Um, you know, with your your current outlook and views, in, in that you're you're really a a pull it, pull it up by the roots sort of person. Um, I'm imagining that this uh, this education in seeing how people dealt with your emotional and psychological and performance issues and with your weight and eating issues by doing just stupid reductionist stuff that really just addressed the the symptoms must must have uh, sort of informed you know, some sort of rebellion against that. Yeah. Oh, completely. And yeah. So, uh, to mention, I don't know if you're interested, but basically my coaches, uh, in gymnastics, they basically, um, their response to like when I was dealing with this stuff was, we know that you are capable of perfection. So until you get back to doing these skills perfectly, you're not allowed to compete. So basically, I was able to like semi overcome my fear of this one skill, specifically on the beam. Um, the skill that I decided to compete was not the back handspring, back handspring, but the back walkover, back handspring. And there was a tiny pause that I would do in between the back walkover and the back handspring, rather than like the full smooth connection. And when I would do that one pause, it's like a two tenth deduction. So basically, if I knew I was going to do that pause, this was back before they changed the scoring. So when I was in gymnastics, it was, you know, 10.0 was the best. And so my routine was basically, if I was automatically going to do this, it was as if I was saying, 
if I do this routine perfectly, including this pause, I'll get a 9.8. And of course, you know, I never did it that perfectly, so I would never get a 9.8. But knowing just that I was capable of perfection, even though I did the skill, I was able to overcome my fear, and I would do the skill with this little tiny two-tenth deduction pause in it, they were like, you're not allowed to compete. So every other year that I was in gymnastics, I would go to the sectional meets, the regional meet, the state meet. You know, I would go on to these big meets, but you have to have an all-around score to do that. And I didn't compete beam the entire year. Um, and then the very, the one meet, the one meet of the year where they let me compete beam um, was the one meet of the year where your all-around score didn't count to qualify you for sectionals and states. And that was, you know, just really difficult for me because, like, I had found a way where I was like, okay, I've, I've found a way to overcome this, and I feel okay about this. And they were like, you know, this, this isn't... You're capable of more, and if you're not going to reach this perfection that you're capable of, then we're not going to, it was like an all or nothing thing. Um, right. So, so anyways. So like, so like the assumption is the, the problem is you're not motivated enough. So we're going to, we're going to up, up the ante to, to get you motivated. Cause that's why you're not perfect. Right. Right. And right. for so, me, it was, you know, not that at all. So, um, and then what did you just what else what else did you ask about that was on the floor? Well, so side? so I mean let's let's take it to like how how bad did the the relationship with food and body image get? Yeah. Okay. So it was it was a long process because this all started like I said um, around like 8th grade. And then nine, the summer between 8th grade and ninth grade is when I really dropped a ton of weight. Um, and then ninth grade is the year where, you know, looking back at pictures, like, I'm really thin. And, um, but then over time, for the next, like, five years after that, it was very much like a healing process with, with some ups and downs. Um, but basically, after my freshman year, when I started seeing all these doctors, and it was like, you know, my weight was becoming a point of discussion, um, I hit a point where I was like, this is dumb. Like, I'm not going to sit here and add butter to my meals and, you know, eat like these, just like <laughs> these foods that I knew weren't healthy. Um, just to gain weight. And I was very much a people pleaser. I very much wanted to make everyone think and know that I was okay and that I was, you know, this perfect person. Like, I just really wanted to please people and make people proud of me and happy with me. And so I think as much as it, you know, was about making myself healthy, it also was about proving to other people that I was okay at first. Um, but I just hit a point where I was like, this is not, the way that they're telling me to gain weight are not healthy. And so I was like, I need to start looking into actual 
like what is healthy? How can I like this? This is just too stressful to live in this way. And how can I fix this? <laughs> how can I find a way to really feel at peace with food and feel good about what I'm eating and nourish my body in the process? Because there has to be a way to do that. And so I started. I went from kind of this like restrictive eating to more of a health focused eating. And again, while that can be well meaning, um, for a little while I took it to an extreme where, because it's one thing to be eating healthfully from a place of truly loving yourself and nourishing your body, and there's another one to eat healthfully from a place of fear. And I was eating healthfully from a place of fear, and it was not so much the love of the healthy foods, but also the fear of the bad foods, or what I had labeled bad foods. And so that was a whole another cycle, and that lasted however many months or a year.、Um, <laughs> it tends to blur in time, but basically, over time, I just more and more so was working through this, basically on my own.、Um, I never. Went to therapy. No one ever suggested to me that I go to therapy. No one ever suggested that I see a specialist for any of this,、um, and I didn't really have anyone that I could talk to about it. So it was really just all internally me、uh, going through different phases and testing things out with myself and、uh, just overcoming it over time and. I actually, you know, before I was applying for schools when I was first looking into colleges, I had decided that I wanted to be a dietitian because I had come, I had, you know, done a good amount of healing, and I was in a place where I felt better about food and the importance of eating healthy. And I was watching so, like, a tragically large、uh, amount of girls on my track team. Go through struggles with eating、uh, based on、um, feeding off of one another—no pun intended—as、um, well as the coach. So,、um, my track coach, the head track coach, was a a great, loving coach in many ways. He thought he was doing the best that he could, or you know, he thought he was doing what was best for everyone. But there were, you know, at least. Six girls on my track team that either had full-blown eating disorders or were dealing with disordered eating, and、um, I don't—I personally don't think it was handled well. I think that the girls who did have eating disorders were、uh, touted and made into examples. Like, look at what these girls are doing. Like, they're winning their races. They're doing all these things, and then. One of them got checked into an eating disorder inpatient facility, and another one,、uh, you know. And it's it's sad. I'm not trying. You know, I love all of these girls dearly, and and it was sad to watch everyone go through this. But basically, I was in a place where I was watching this happen, and I was like, these discussions that we're having about food cannot be right, and I. I want to go become a dietitian and be a sports dietitian and work with sports teams and help girls and and boys、um, help athletes to fuel their body in a healthy way where we're focused on 
nutrition and nourishment and energizing, fueling foods rather than how to keep our weight down so that we have, you know, the best race. And I really was becoming passionate about that. Uh, but then... So, so at, th at that point, did you... Because, you know, you, you, you had lived your life as a life of discipline, right? And you were surrounded by coaches and teammates and expectations where, you know, discipline is good. Four hours is better than three and a half. Exactly. Not, you know, not indulging in this food is better than indulging in this food. And so, you know, you, and, and your best athletes, your best runners were the ones who were held up as being the most disciplined. And part of that discipline was this unhealthy relationship with food and all these restrictions. Did you begin to develop a different kind of discernment that, that it wasn't simply like a slippery slope from really disciplined to eating disorder to this understanding of, you know, fear versus love? Like, how did, where, where were you in terms of your understanding of there's a qualitative difference as opposed to just a difference of degree? Um, so I think I was starting to, to realize that, but a lot of that really came later. Uh, it was really once I started eating a plant-based diet that I think that really all came full circle for me. But I definitely was in a place where I was realizing that more restriction and more discipline doesn't always serve us. And so I definitely was at that realization. Um, anyways, to, to finish up what, what could be a long story, um, by the time I went to college, I was at a healthier weight and I was feeling much better about my relationship with food and I think that there was always still something in the back of my mind that was just searching for that that place of true inner peace with everything um, like I remember the summer before I went to college uh, you have to get a physical and you know, they'd send it into the school, and the school sent back a thing that was like, hey, like, we noticed that you're on the borderline of being underweight. And um, so my doctor recommended that I drink Ensure. So for the first, like, semester that I was in college, I would go to the local CVS and buy, like, packages of Ensure and drink, like, an Ensure a day. And I can't believe I did that now. But at the time, I was just like, I'm done with this. I'm done with, you know, people being worried about me and I'm done with being underweight. Like I will do whatever it takes to just, and I just, you know, was at a point where I was like, I'm going to trust what these doctors say because I just want to be in a better place with all of this. Um, but I was not, at that point I wasn't like restricting food, um, intentionally or anything like that. I really was happy with, you know, I really felt a much better sense of peace and healing from where I had been. Um, but anyways, so I did not join the cross country team or track team when I was in college. I decided that I really just wanted to have fun with those sports as much as I loved running. I didn't want to commit myself to a team anymore. I was really ready to just kind of 
make that a more relaxing part of my life and not something that, um, less, less of a commitment, less of something that I was going to put pressure on myself about. And I really wanted to focus on school and schoolwork when I was in college. So, but I kept running and I signed up for, you know, some half marathons and for these triathlons I got into for a little while. And I loved it. I was super into running. And the book that was a catalyst for so much change in my life was uh, the book Born to Run. And I read that book the summer between my freshman year and sophomore year of school. And have you, I'm sure, have you read that book? I'm guessing you have. Yeah. So the book doesn't like argue for veganism or anything like that. But it does profile Scott Jurek, and it talks about the Terramar Indians and the way that they are able to run, you know, 50, 60 miles a day on average, and they basically eat, like, corn and beans and chia. And that just really piqued my interest. And um, I had a friend who had recently gone vegetarian, and I... Just like, you know, the word vegan and stuff had just been popping up in in my life lately, just in different ways. You know, when you start to pay attention to something or something piques your interest, then it starts popping up all over the place. And that's kind of what happened. And so I basically was like, I'm just going to try this. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this vegan thing and see what happens. And... I made the decision while I was training for a triathlon. I was like, I don't know if I'll be able to get enough protein and mess up my training. So, of course, I waited until after the triathlon was done. Uh, But I finished the triathlon, uh, like, mid-September, so very early in my sophomore year of school. And then, like, two days later, I decided I was going to go vegan. And at the time, it was just, like, like I said, an experiment. I was like, maybe I'll do this for one month, two months, three months, who knows, like, I'm just going to try this and see how it feels, how I like it, and from there, it just, you know, I felt great, I felt healthy, I felt, um, and, yeah, I just, I felt really good instantly eating that way, uh, just in terms of, like, just physically, um, and then the more that I, continued to learn about it because as I was eating that way, you know, um, like my boyfriend bought me a vegan cookbook and I started, you know, reading articles and I watched it, you know, some documentaries. And then, um, the more that I learned, the more I was like really starting to feel into it and feel like this was right and what I wanted to keep doing. Um, and then I saw Forks Over Knives and that just, that changed it all. I mean, I, I watched that movie and I saw, I feel like I just always had had this sense that there is a way to eat that is in alignment with what our body wants and needs. And I was intent on figuring out what it was. And I knew that there was a place where you could have a relationship with food that wasn't this guilty pleasure or like love, hate, like this like, bad, good thing, you know, teetering on one another, where it's just, it's all good, it's all pure love, healthy nourishment, like, that had to exist, because food is integral in fueling our bodies, and it's part of nature, and I feel like I always had that sense, and when I saw Forks Over Knives, 
it showed me everything that I feel like I had known was there. Like, I watched this movie and was just like, food has so much power and it is healing and we have so much power over our health. And it just, I, I was, in that moment, I was sold and I knew that that's what I wanted to it was, I mean, I really, this might sound silly, but I really felt like I watched that movie and was like, this is what I want to devote my life to studying and understanding and helping people with and helping myself with. And after I finished that movie, like, I remember sitting on Amazon the next day and buying, like, seven books. And uh, as I was reading the books, I started emailing different people and asking everyone if I could come shadow them and learn from the different doctors. And I ended up going and staying with Pam Popper for my spring break that year and learning from her. And from then onward, it just became, you know, down the rabbit hole. I just <laughs> kept learning and reading. And that's how I ended up uh, getting involved with Engine 2. I went to the very first plant stock. Uh, fun fact, I've been at every plant stock so far. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I went to that first one and I, I talked to Rip Esselstyn and, uh, I was there with two friends and our parents and, and, you know, I did, I started interning with engine two and then that just, you know, from there, it's just been a beautiful journey. So it's been, um, six years now and every single day I become more passionate and every, every single day I feel even better about it. Like it just, um, has truly transformed my life and has been a really big, uh, initiator in transforming my relationship with food and my relationship with myself, because I'm a big believer that the relationship that we have with food is a mirror of the relationship that we have with ourselves. And, um, yeah, like just, just every step of the journey has been, has been powerful and healing. And, um, as much as I do feel like I had done a lot of really, uh, deep healing by the time that I found a plant-based diet, I also really credit a plant-based diet to helping me make that, that final turn because, when you're eating a plant-based diet, you're filling your life with an abundance of foods that are so nourishing. And the more that you learn, the more that you not only see that it's what's best for yourself, but it's also beyond you. You know, it's, it's what is best for, for everyone, for the environment, for this world at large, for our community, uh, for the well-being of animals, for everything. And it just becomes this this beautiful place of what I was saying, where it's, it's all working in harmony with nature and your body and the world at large. And that is so beautiful and powerful to feel like you're, you're part of that and know that you're fueling that system in a way that is really positive and beneficial. And what, you know, one thing that really strikes me about your story is that while while all your struggles were going on, while you were going to these doctors and struggling with your coaches, that there was an illusion that this was your personal problem, mm -hmm. right? That this is this is this was all about like your psychology, and you can so clearly see that it's that your 
manifestation of, of difficulties was was just was so totally embedded into the culture. In, you know, into the culture of achievement and performance, into the culture of, you know, how girls and women's bodies should look, into the culture of this is the normal food that we eat. Is that, you know, it's like you, you have a unique twist on the story, but we all are, you know, it's, it's, it's like trying to grow healthy plants in, a, in an unhealthy field. Like, you know, the, the, you, you ultimately had to address, had to kind of opt out of the mainstream understanding of food and nutrition and self-care in order to heal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great thing to point out. Like, this isn't, this is my story, but yes, it is totally a story that comes from the environment and society that we live in, 100%. And I think that's really what has you know, laid the, the grounding for me to be so passionate about all of this. And uh, as I'm sure you know, as much as I love helping people to understand the power that they have over their health in terms of, you know, lowering their cholesterol and lowering their blood pressure and bringing everything into a healthy range, uh, preventing heart disease, preventing or reversing diabetes, you know, all sorts of things, autoimmune conditions even. Um, at the same time, I also think that, you know, the mental and emotional aspects that surround eating are also very disordered these days for everyone. I mean, this is, you know, potentially a controversial thing to say, but I feel like most people in the United States have some form of disordered eating. You know, we we are emotional eaters and so many people have this this when you know food is a source of pleasure but it's also a source of guilt it's a source of fear it's a source of anxiety and that to me is what i really want to help people change is is healing that relationship and finding a sense of mindfulness and peace and uh, just really uh, transforming our relationship that we have with food because food is something that should empower us, not disempower us. Yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned, I think it was in the interview um, with, uh, with his name, Dylan? From, from oh, Dylan, yes. That for a long time you were ashamed of your background in disordered mm. eating and you were trying to hide it from yourself and from other people. And, you know, as, as I was listening to that, I was like, you know, I was, I was listening to that while I was running and I was, you know, if I'd had any breath, I would have been screaming like, no, Tara, no, don't, don't you understand? This is your superpower. Right. Yeah. That, that, that you have, you know, that like I could have all the, the, the science and skills in the world, but I am not going to be able to work with, you know, 14-year-old girls with eating disorders in, in any degree of effectiveness like you would because mm -hmm. you've been there, you've had the experience. And so, you know, so I'm, I'm really curious about how you, um, how you healed the, the shame. You know, I sort of understand how you healed the dysmorphia and how you changed your diet. But I know a lot of people, especially girls who've gone vegan 
And when I look at how they eat vegan, I still look at them and go, they're still disordered. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're using their veganism as a cudgel or as a punishment or or as another means of hyper control. And, you know, you ca- luckily you came to it kind of after you had done some of that healing. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious, like, what what was your process for for getting to a place where you could say, I am at peace with food and I'm doing this for for very simple reasons of self-love? Yeah. So, yeah, so there's a couple things in there. Um, I completely agree with you, and I it is it is sad to see that happening sometimes. And it's hard because I think that, you know, sometimes we, we look at people and we make judgments just based on what's on their plate. But two people can eat the exact same meal, and one person can be eating from a place of fear, and one person can be eating from a place of love. So it's really hard to judge just by what you see someone eating in terms of what's going on in their minds mentally. Um, that being said, uh, overcoming the shame uh, was was probably the most difficult thing I've ever gone through. And it was not just that one, you know, I don't want to call it little, but like that one thing, it was, you know, there was a lot wrapped up in that. There was, you know, everything that got me to that place. And, uh, there was a lot of, a lot of healing that had to, to take place. And, um, I had the help of a a wonderful therapist, uh, when I was living in DC that helped me through a lot of that. Um, as well as many people that didn't work with me personally, but just have been very helpful teachers, such as the work of Brene Brown or uh, Tara Brock um, and other authors. But to talk about the food side of things and how I was able to really come into a place of knowing that I was eating from a, a place of love and not fear is it really it really came down to uh, true... Uh, the, the, the name of one of Tara Brock's book is Radical Acceptance, and I'm going to take that term and say true radical acceptance, which is like just overall 100%, like no, no exceptions, acceptance of who I am and what I've been through. And if I'm able to feel that with myself, and if, if someone is able to come into a place where no matter what, they, they accept, no matter what is true about themselves, they accept it, then it puts you in a place where you feel safe to really look your insecurities and your, quote, flaws in the face. And I think that before, I wasn't able to do that because I was so afraid that they were true. Hmm. And so when I'm now coming from a place of no matter what is true, I know that it's okay, and I know that I'm still worthy of love, and it doesn't make me a broken or unlovable or, uh, it doesn't, you know, no matter what is true about myself, I know that it will be okay. And so coming from that place of 
you know, unconditional self-compassion has enabled me to be really real and honest with myself when things aren't okay. And it's funny how, how that happens. Um, but so I think that, you know, at this point, I know that I can be real with myself and I'm able to, I'm able to put myself in check. Um, and I'm, for the most part, you know, I, I don't think about, I know that I don't, I don't think about a lot of this as much anymore, but I do, I do stay mindful of it because I, I know that I don't want to ever go back to those places where I was feeling restrictive or, or eating from a place of fear. Um, so I think what really it comes down to is developing that unconditional love for myself and being able to, to look honestly at where, where the source of my decisions was coming from and, and then acting on that and moving through that. And so there are times where I've had to, to challenge myself in ways and just kind of work almost, you know, uh, work with myself as if I'm my own client and, um, work through why, you know, really ask myself, why am I making these decisions and what is fueling certain decisions? So, um, you know, you'll, I think you said that you listened to the podcast that I did with Dylan. And at the time when I did that podcast with my friend Dylan on his, uh, plant power podcast, um, I was eating raw for a period of time and loving it. But I remember when I first started doing that, I was like, okay, I'm like trying out this, this raw style of this diet. And I was like, I really need to make sure that I'm doing this not out of place of like, uh, here's the next step. Right. Like not, I was trying to think of, uh, you know, there's the term being thrown around now, orthorexia, and that's what I was trying to pull up in my mind. And not from a place of like, you know, I'm afraid of anything other than perfection. I need to do this because this is the ultimate healthy thing to do. And I never wanted to feel restricted. And so I didn't commit myself to any amount of time. I wasn't like, I'm doing a raw diet. Um, I wasn't like, I'm going to do this for a year. I wasn't like, I'm going to do this for six months. I was just like, I'm going to do this today because it feels good and this is what my body wants. And then I would wake up the next day and say the same thing. And I didn't know when it was going to end or how long it was going to last. And I'm really glad that I, when I did hit a point where I was like, you know what? I feel like I really want something else today. Mm-hmm. Then I went out and I made that happen. And so I think well, that... Yeah, that's, that's the nice thing, you know, especially as, as you become a sort of public persona. You know, we haven't talked about your, your incredible Instagram feed and social media presence and the fact that you are an influence on a lot of people. That when, when your commitment is to sort of truth and discernment, then you get to make decisions in your own best interest without having to, um, you know, put energy into your mask. Right. Into the thing, you know, what you talked about earlier is like being a people pleaser. Mm-hmm. Like I could imagine like, you know, someone who said, oh, okay, I'm raw now. And all the raw people, you know, congratulate you and send you kudos. And then you're like jonesing for a baked potato 
And you're like, I can't let them down or I can't let them know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I definitely think that, that the mindfulness is key. And yes, the, the people pleasing, uh, I'm definitely a recovering people pleaser. And as much as I still love to make people happy and bring people joy and, you know, make, make people proud and, you know, do things for other people, do things for my friends and live a life of service. I also have learned that I need to exert self-care and I need to be authentic and know, be in touch with myself first and foremost and act always from a place where I'm doing myself proud and I'm not sacrificing any part of myself in order to please other people because when we do that, it's just a recipe for disaster. It always leaves us needing to look outside of ourselves for, uh, for that validation. And I've learned that I need to be self-validating. I need to be my own best friend, my own mothering presence, my own uh, sense of care and... And just, yeah, validation. I need to know within myself that I'm doing what is true and authentic to my values and who I am and let that be okay, even if it's not what I think other people want from me. Because at the end of the day, we actually don't know what's going on in other people's heads and what they think about us is a reflection of who they are, not who we are. And learning those types of lessons has uh, been really important to my journey as well. Yeah, and there's something really nice about, uh, you know, the self-love in the way that you describe it. So I have to admit, when, I, when we first started um, emailing back and forth about topics and you said self-love, I had this kind of knee-jerk negative reaction like it, it, it brought up a lot of my own shadow stuff, but I could just imagine, you know, I'm a pretty sort of gentle guest and I just, I could imagine myself just like really going after you, like, like a, a prosecutor. What do you mean self-love? Like it really, it really challenged some of, some of my um, areas of, in, in which I need healing. But in listening to you talk in other podcasts and coming to understand what you're talking about, self-love really, it's nothing personal, you know, mm-hmm. it's not like, it's, it's, it's sort of just a, a, a fact of the universe as opposed to I have to think that everything I do is okay or pretend or more like what I was reacting against is this idea of like self-love is I'm going to pretend everything's okay about myself or I'm just going to repeat affirmations and I'm just going to look at the good and I'm going to say I love myself no matter what and, you know, just a kind of giant slippery slope to complacency. Right. As, as opposed to self-love, to me, um, you know, in, in the past year or so, I've become uh, a runner. I've put myself in, in pain many times trying to achieve goals. And for me, self-love carries a very fierce edge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so, so that's what I'm starting to understand when you talk about self-love, is that it, it becomes the, the substrate for the work you do on yourself. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that was, that was a beautiful way to put it. Thank you, Howard. Uh, and I'm glad that, that you're finding uh, that 
that in your own life and that you're coming around to it in that way because it can be, you know, it can be a turnoff for some people when you say self-love or, you know, another way that I've heard people uh, not really resonate with it um, that's a little bit different than what you described is some people will say to me, I don't think that we should just think we're the best, that we should just, you know, really like love everything about ourselves and... It's not that I think, I mean, self-love isn't about thinking that we're the best. Um, it's not about comparing ourselves to anyone else or putting ourselves above everyone else. Uh, so maybe, you know, in some ways, self-compassion might be a better term um, that, that might resonate more with people because it's not necessarily thinking that, that we're better than anyone else or that, you know, that we think that everything about ourselves is great, you know? Right. Maybe, maybe the, like most of us just hope for like the absence of self-loathing. Right. <laughs> a good place to start. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, you know, I don't know what other people are thinking in their deepest, darkest places, but I know what I'm thinking in my deepest, darkest places, and I hope nobody ever finds out because it's, it's pretty alarming. Right. Right. And I think that's the key is that we need to change the conversation with ourselves. And like I was saying before, like if we don't, if we're not able to bring light into those dark places and to explore them, then they're just going to sit within us and fester. And like going back to the shame thing, like that's definitely something that I dealt with is, you know, I pushed, I pushed aside those feelings and was just like, I'm fine now that's in the past. And like, nobody needs to know about that. And I'm just not going to talk about it and I'm going to overcome it. But it's like, until I'm able to, but that, you know, that always ends up coming and showing up in our lives. And as much as we think that we push things down and we act like they don't exist, they do. And they manifest themselves in our lives in, in various ways um, until we explore them and we bring them into the light and we, we make peace with them. And then from there, we free ourselves from being controlled by them. So I'm curious if you, you know, you, you mentioned Tara Brock. Um, do you do, like, meditation? Do you go on retreats? Do you have a practice? Or is this sort of just a daily, you know, catch-as-catch-can uh, approach? Um, I haven't done any retreats in regards to, like, meditation or self-love or things like that. But I have developed a meditation practice. Um, I started that... I guess like two or three years ago now, I guess maybe three years ago. Wow. Um, but yeah, about two or three years ago now I started meditating and meditation was a huge, huge part of, uh, all of this, you know, healing for me. Like at this point, like meditation is part of, uh, the way that I live, the way that I eat, the way that I, you know, the values that I have, like it just, you know, it becomes one big, circular, uh, all connectedness. Um, but yeah, so I meditate just about every morning. I need to be better about making sure that I keep up with it when I travel. Uh, I usually end up doing it a few days, but when I'm home, it's an everyday thing. Every single morning, first thing I do is I wake up and I meditate and there are lots of different ways to meditate. Um, when I first started, I used guided meditations via the Headspace app. And, um, 
you know, <laughs> meditation did not come easily to me. It's not something that I just sat down and like found my Zen and was just, you know, sitting with like butterflies fluttering around. It was like really hard. Like I really, I thought for years that like meditation was something that like yogi, like peaceful hippie people do. And like, I'm, I'm a, I like yoga. I'm like a hippie in a lot of ways. You know, I have those parts of me, but like my brain is always on like my entire life. Like I can't remember any time where it wasn't hard for me to fall asleep. Um, when I was little, I would annoy the crap out of my parents staying up for hours, not being able to fall asleep because of one thing or another. Um, and that continued through elementary school, through middle school, through high school, through college. Like, and I tried lots of different things to try and fall asleep. I had like tapes of rain and I would journal and, you know, all of those things helped. But, um, basically the, the point is that my mind is always going and it's one of those, you know, they call it the monkey mind. It's going, you know, always roving, going at hundred miles an hour. And so when I first started meditating, to even think about not thinking was just like really hard to, to imagine doing. And, um, you know, it would have been easy to get discouraged, but, um, I read the book real happiness and that was a really good intro to me. And then I started using the headspace app and just having the guided meditation I really needed at the beginning. Um, but now I just, I sit and I do a silent meditation and, um, that's like funny I, because I'm, I've been doing the Headspace app for about six months, uh -huh. and and I feel like I've graduated beyond it. Uh huh. Like I just um, I want to be like slightly less manipulative around my practice and my thoughts, but I'm a little addicted to it because it keeps giving me these streaks. Like how many days in a row? <laughs> if I sit and meditate on my own, I'm like I've got to call Andy Puttycomb and tell him I meditated today so he can, <laughs> he can add it to my stats. <laughs> Oh, I love it. So it's like this mindfulness thing is just, has become another achievement in my right, life. Right, another, you know, I'm pleasing this guy who truly doesn't give a shit with her. <laughs> I know. It's funny how, how we turn all of these things into, like, ways to measure our success or, you know, to, to track how well we're doing with things. It's really funny. Um, but yeah, so I know that, you know, there are guided meditations, there are visual meditations, there are all sorts of ways that people do it. But for me, what is most powerful is to just find space and get that, that silence. And, um, <laughs> I've, I've gone to guided meditations before a couple of times and they just, they don't work for me. I take the ideas and my mind goes off with them and, so for me, for right now, the silent meditation is what I really get the most from. And it's just really, you know, it's one thing to tell people like, oh, like, you're not your thoughts. Like, you can separate from them. You're more than what your brain thinks of. But for me, I really needed to live it to learn it. So to find the breath and connect with the breath as a tool and for someone who hasn't meditated, like, I can remember hearing people talk about this, and it was just, like, so hard to, like, conceptualize. But really, like, if I find myself in a place where I start to get anxious, um, I, can, I notice it, like, viscerally. I feel it. Like, I know where in my body 
I start to feel stress and I instantaneously, I notice it, I stop and I just take some deep breaths and just like connect my focus and attention to my breath rather than where my brain was going. And it's so powerful. And so that has just been like such a gift in my life to, to find that I have this tool and this like haven that I can return to anytime with me always. And so that has been really powerful. And also, um, yeah, just, you know, understanding that I am stronger than the anxious thoughts that sometimes come into my brain. And, um, you know, the brain is a beautiful, powerful, amazing tool that we have that can help us to do so many ridiculously wonderful things and can help us to, you know, form our perception and create the experience that we live in each day. But uh, for those of us that have anxious tendencies, it can also be an enemy and something that we fear. And so to learn that I don't need to fear my own brain and that, you know, I am, I can, you know, separate from any thoughts that don't serve me has been uh, a, a key part of, you know, making me who I am today and helping me to live in the way that I do and do what I do each day. So um, I, I'm very grateful to meditation. Yeah, and, and it's interesting how you know, we, we started out by talking about you had these anxious thoughts that you, you then sublimated into food so that you could control something. And now you're kind of addressing the anxious thoughts head on, but not with the agenda of control at all. Right. Yes. And I think, like I said, like that, that has just been definitely just, you know, part of the entire process of, of working with who I am and the cards that I got dealt and uh, coming forward into being the best version of myself and, you know, self-actualizing the, the person that I know that I am and can be. And uh, I really believe that the more that we're able to be for ourselves, who we know we are, you know, when we think about, you know, I wish I was as patient as this person, or I wish that I was more, uh, you know, I wish that I was, you know, more, whether it's patient or um, smarter or more giving or more compassionate, like any of those things like that we want to be, that place of want is coming from knowing that we already are those things. And I think that the more that we're able to just, you know, self-actualize who we really are deep down, the more we're able to give ourselves to others. Because if we're feeling self-fulfilled and we're already full and we're not asking for validation or we don't need other people to give us anything in order for us to feel loved and fulfilled and, you know, okay, then we can just give ourselves in service with no agenda to others and to the world. And uh, the more that we can love and accept ourselves, the more that we can have that same level of compassion for everyone else around us. And I definitely have, you know, this is all mostly coming from, from experience. So I guess I can't say that this is true for everyone, definitely. But I personally think that it probably is <laughs> just because, 
you know, I've, I've read different books about it and I've talked to other people who experience similar things. And it really, you know, all of this, this whole journey, you know, it, it's tied up in food, but it's so much more than food. But I like to focus on the food and the nutrition just because I think that it can be a really powerful catalyst for people. Um, and I think that it can, it can be the start of honoring yourself and doing what's best for yourself and starting to think in new ways and rewire the way that we, uh, the way that we uh, think and the way that we do things for ourselves. And, you know, we eat, we all eat every single day. Uh, <laughs> and it's a really powerful opportunity to start to start changing the way that we do have the, the way that we think and the way that we have relationships with, with food. And like I've said, I think that that changes our relationship with ourselves as well. Right. And, you know, the other thing is that, you know, food, as you said, is a mirror for the relationship with ourselves. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in if you want to change the way you think, then start by changing the way you act. Mm-hmm. Even if you're even if you're faking it so that if if I say, you know, well, self-love means I'm eating this plate of delicious food because I want to nourish myself. Well, before you get there, like just start eating that plate of nutritious food. And, you know, th- that's going to be some proof to yourself. Right. So when you when you try to figure out, like, who am I? What do I believe? You look for evidence. You know, it's like, well, I drink coffee every day. Therefore, I'm a coffee drinker. Um, I work in IT, therefore I'm a tech worker. I eat healthy food, therefore I'm someone who has the capacity to care about my body and love myself so that the, the action can precede the intention sometimes. Right. Yes, absolutely. I think that every, every action that we take is, is telling ourselves, I care about myself or... I don't care about myself. Like I'm worthy of taking this step. I'm worthy of doing, giving my body what is, what is best or, you know, I'm, I'm not worthy of this thing. And it's the same when we act in ways that are authentic or inauthentic to ourselves. You know, like I was saying about the people pleasing thing, like anytime that I, you know, make a decision based on what I think someone else wants me to do versus something that I truly want to do, if I make a decision based on what I think other people want from me, but it isn't authentic to myself, that feels really crappy automatically. Like right away, I feel that. And that's a reminder that every time we make a decision, it is sending ourselves a message that we, it's sending ourselves a message. And, you know, sometimes that message is that, you know, we're, we're worth this thing or that we love ourselves or that, that we're not worth it and we don't love ourselves. And I think that, like you were saying, like taking that action sends ourselves that message. And, and we notice that, you know, it's, <laughs> it's funny. It's very like meta, all these different levels, but it really is true. Whether it's the conversation that we have with ourselves mentally or it's the actions that we take, it's all a communication with ourselves. Right. And, and that's, I think, the value of mindfulness there is that we're all going to make those mistakes, right? We're all going to say yes to things that maybe we should say no to. And if we're not mindful, we're not going to register those feelings in our bodies, those sensations. 
and, or we won't, we'll, recognize, we'll, we'll register them, but we won't attribute them to the correct cause, and then we'll go eat some crap to make ourselves feel better in the moment. So it's like it really is all connected. Right, absolutely. And, and you know, going on top of that and connecting to what we said before, like when you eat healthy food, you notice, if you're being mindful, you notice how it makes you feel in comparison to when you eat the, the crappy food or the unhealthy food. Like you, you feel that in your body that you feel lighter, you feel more energized, you don't feel lethargic. You know, there's a difference in the way that your body feels after you have a nourishing plant-based meal or, you know, a processed animal foods-based meal. And noticing the way that it makes your body feel also, you know, plays into that. Like, it either will help you continue that cycle of making positive decisions for yourself or, you know, if you let that go unnoticed, then it won't. So the mindfulness is definitely key. And I'm, I'm starting to understand, like, what tools you're bringing to whenever it is that you start your, your MPHRD degree um, in terms of your ability to, to be compassionate and loving with the people who are going to be teaching you stuff that you don't necessarily agree with. That I could see, you know, a lot of people I know, including myself, I have to say, if I went for, like, if I went to become an MD because I felt like that was the way I needed to go to have a voice and influence or an RD or whatever, that, you know, that I know that right now I would go in, like, with very sharp elbows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I might come out with a degree, but I wouldn't come out with a lot of friends. And... And I can see how the work you've done on yourself around self-love is going to allow you to navigate really gracefully to gain all the things that there are to gain from that education. All the details, all the, you know, the science stuff that you, you never really chased after before and still maintain your integrity and not have to, you know please your professors by parroting things that you don't believe. So I can see how, like, the most important training for you wasn't necessarily, like, you know, summer school in organic chemistry, but this, this life training of becoming a person who is confident in yourself and therefore you get to be very generous with others. Yeah, well, thank you for putting that into words because I hadn't really thought about that specifically, but... I think that you're right. I think that, you know, it's just, it's training for, for all of life. And yeah, I really do uh, hope that I'm able to gracefully navigate school where I'm, I'm learning everything that I can and growing in every way that the opportunity presents itself to me, but also not losing sight of, uh, what I know to be true and sticking to those high standards that I want to set for, for society and for myself and knowing and believing that this world is better than it's currently existing and helping to be part of actualizing what I know this world, what we all have within us, uh, and, and holding us to, to making that happen and, and trying to help move that process along. Right on. So I'm looking at the time. We're, uh, 
We've talked for a long time. It hasn't felt like it, but my clock tells me that it has been. Um, <laughs> so there's so much more that we're not going to talk about, but um, you've been on other podcasts and you've covered a, a bunch of other topics. So I'll, I'll include those in the show notes. But, you know, you are a, a phenomenal Instagrammer. Thank and, you. <laughs> um, which is something I, don't, I truly do not understand the medium at all. So uh, <laughs> hats off. Um, where, if people want to follow you, and stay in touch and get inspired and continue this conversation with you. Where's, where are some good places for them to go? Yeah, the best place right now is Instagram. That's definitely uh, the social media platform that I use the most. Um, I will say if you want to send me a longer message, uh, just emailing me is best. And you can email me either through the link on Instagram or it's just my name, Tara, uh, middle initial F, Kemp at gmail.com. And uh, just because... Instagram messages, they like don't, if you read them, you can't like mark them as unread or like flag them or something to go back to them and they get lost. So, uh, but you know, reach the, basically, uh, Instagram is the best place. You can also find me on Facebook. Um, but those are the two that's, that's Instagram is really the place where I'm doing most of my social media right now. I, for a while I was dabbling in different things like, I did have a couple of podcast episodes that I put out or I did some YouTube videos, but right now I'm just, I needed to, to focus and hone my attention in on studying. And uh, if I do any other social media work, it's, it's for the Mastering Diabetes team. So, <laughs> gotcha. so, I'm, I'm on, so it's just uh, Tara Kemp underscore yes. is, is your Instagram feed. Man, I, I, would, I would love you to post an ugly meal one day. <laughs> it would make me feel so much better about myself, but that's just, that's just me. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so if you watch my stories, sometimes I show, like, what I do with, you know, after I take the pretty Instagram photo, then I show, like, the post-photo mashup of just, like, everything mashed together in a big salad bowl. <laughs> yeah. All right, well... Tara, thank you so much. You've been very, very generous with your time. I don't, I don't know if you're um, procrastinating some study or, or <laughs> not, but I really appreciate this this conversation. I'm so I'm so happy that we, we actually spent a lot of time, a lot more time than I usually spend with guests on kind of the the dark part of the journey. Um, I usually like to kind of like just um, you know highlight that and then get to all the good stuff. It feels really important that we spent almost an hour um, talking about the, the struggles and the journey and the learnings, par- partly because I think they're, they're going to be, you know, even with your RDMPH, they're going to be your, your, your greatest resources. And, and also, um, you know, not, not to um, tempt a, a recovering people pleaser, but I can totally see you starting a, a plant-based RD program like in in 15 years like you know so that other people don't have to go through what you went through and so Mm -hmm. so that you know you've really changed the industry from the inside so so i know you're you're gonna you know have a huge impact make a huge splash and i want to be able to say you know what before everybody knew who tara was (laughs) she was on my podcast oh my gosh well thank you so much it it really does mean a lot to me to have the support and as much as uh i've learned to to have the self-validation the external validation still always feels great <laughs> so right. so so thank you so much and i i did enjoy the conversation and 
you know, I still do sometimes feel that that little like, you know, pinch of fear as I'm starting to talk about everything that I went through. But um, it is always really reassuring when people connect with it. And, you know, to know that there are people who who listen to this type of thing and say, you know, me too, and know that that it resonates with them and that it can help them in some way. So for those reasons, I feel that it is important to share. Right. I never had anyone come up to me when I was being fake and saying, oh, good, somebody else who has no problems. I can really identify with you. (laughs) That's such a good point. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Tara, thank you again. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll keep in touch. I want to find out, like, when you end up starting school, what other initiatives you get involved in, uh, because you are are a a bright light in the in the plant-based uh, firmament and we're we're all better off for having you oh well thank you so much i feel the same way about you howard the work that you've done to not only you know on your own but also you've just done so much work to help push forward so many other people in this movement i mean the work that you did with dr campbell and garth davis and now josh lajani i mean you're you're such a rock star and the way that you use your skills to help lift others up is so beautiful, inspiring. And I just want to honor you in that as well. Oh, thank you. I, I too love external validation. <laughs> so, uh, it gonna, does I'm feel gonna, great. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to just cuddle, cuddle that comment for a little while before I go to lunch. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Take care, Tara. Thank Thanks. Again. Yeah. Talk to you soon. If you enjoyed this episode of the plant yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. More than anything else, those reviews help us reach more listeners and spread the message. And for information about the Big Change Program starting in September, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 222. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 221 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast but you don't get my weekly-ish newsletter, The Big Change Bulldog, you can sign up for that and also get the Stop Self-Sabotage Report at plantyourself.com slash sabotage. Okay, here's the part of the show where I express my gratitude and make a fool of myself at the same time. Thanks to Plant Yourself podcast patrons, Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharf, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kanofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolan, Manova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gila Lassert, David Donahue, Blair Seibert, Dorona Vizov, Rhymes with Keep the Cheese Off, Gio and Carolyn Argentati. <sighs> Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmed, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable Harry R., Susan Lafferty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Rhymes with Furry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch of Plant Happy Oregon, Sabine Kurtzals, and Nigel Davies. For your generous support of the podcast. And of course, thanks to Will Ridenauer. Every week, I thank Will Ridenauer for writing this beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his beautiful Cora music. If you'd like to support this show, you can share this and other episodes on social media via email. You can write that iTunes review, and you can become a patron of the show with an ongoing contribution over at plantyourself.com. And if you do, you get access 
to my healthy habit huddles three times a month. I come and uh, talk at you. I offer you uh, guidance on incorporating healthy habits into your own life. In Garden News, we got our first four okra last night, threw them into a stew. It wasn't particularly tasty because I forgot to throw in any uh, condiments, but still nothing that can't be fixed with uh, healthy dollops of sriracha, um, Dijon mustard, and nutritional yeast. In running news, a long weekend of running, um, and I'm still tired. So today is Tuesday. I'm taking it easy. I'll probably go for a run in the afternoon, but I did not wake myself up this morning. We'll see how that goes. Oh, and before I let you go, a couple of podcast reviews came in this week, and I just love them. One of those is titled Give Just a Little by C. Painter, who says, I just became a patron after hearing Howard break down the numbers on his time and money spent giving us A-plus content. I just had to give and not just take. Oh, thank you so much, not only for giving, but also for leaving that review. So hopefully it will inspire others. And then Francis Poseidon says, incredible. I love this podcast so much. Howard is so personable and has such great rapport with his guests. He picks really fascinating people to talk to. I have learned so much about plants, sustainability, nutrition, and lifestyle from this podcast. I recommend it to anyone looking into getting healthier. Oh, thank you so much, Francis Poseidon. It occurs to me I should have other people read these. I'm starting to blush a little bit here. Anyway, thank you all. Thanks, everyone who has become a patron. Thank you, everyone who has volunteered to uh, transcribe episodes for everyone who's shared a review who has shared this podcast and who has gone and done something with anything that you've heard here who made a change in your own life and rippled it outward my gratitude is overflowing so that's it for this week as always be well my friends